Welcome to Problem Addict, a weekly podcast about notoriously problematic pop culture icons from our favorite reality TV shows, past and present, music videos, movies, and everything in between. Hey, all you problematics. It's Eugene, the host of Problematic Pod. I want to thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Is there anyone out there that had like a really remarkable, exciting Memorial Day weekend? Because I don't know anyone that did. (laughs) Uh, It rained almost the entire weekend in New York City. It rained all day Saturday. It rained all day Sunday. Pretty much all day Monday. We got about three hours of... the, The sun came out for about three hours on Monday afternoon. And by that time, like... Who cares? The weekend's over. But the good thing about having a rained out weekend is I got a lot of television watching done. Almost too much television, like to the point where I don't really remember much of what happened. But I did catch up with two, maybe three episodes of Married at First Sight Australia. Uh, I'm still a few weeks behind on that show, but finally we got to the point where Cyrell and Nick and Billy and Susie are gone. They are done with the social experiment. I think Billy and Susie hold the record for being in this like the like the least amount of time. I think from the beginning to the end, they were maybe in it for about three weeks, but with two hour episodes each week, it's about six episodes. So it seems like they were there for a long time. But anyway, um, I also watched all of special season two on Netflix. I feel really bad talking about that show because of the subject matter. But at one point watching the show, I was thinking that the lead actor, Ryan, kind of reminded me of Emily in Paris, where people just kind of throw themselves at the lead character, even though the lead character may not be um, the most charming or... Uh, attractive in the gay sense and by that I mean muscles (laughs) Um, but yeah like this guy has no problems getting dates in Los Angeles this guy got more dates in Los Angeles in the course of his two two seasons of the show than I did in nine years of living in San Francisco just saying Shrill is also back Uh, I believe it's season three so I watched I think most of Shrill season three I think I might have one episode left. And I'm bringing this up because I think Special, Shrill, uh, what other show is there? I can't think of it right now. But I am really, really sick of like workplace sitcoms with bad receptionists. Or not bad receptionists, but receptionists that are like truly horrible at being receptionists um being receptionists because i think (laughs) i think that executive producers and showrunners think that we think receptionists are funny and there are things that i think that special 
Shrill and the great HBO Max show Hacks have in common various varying degrees. They have this one thing in common is that the show all have like this receptionist boss. That's a horrible person. (laughs) And it's usually some sort of form of nepotism. But it just really stood out to me that the receptionist on Hacks is not qualified for her job. (laughs) The receptionist from Shrill doesn't really seem qualified for her job. And then, like, the office from Special, they're just, like, dumb people (laughs) that work at this uh, Eggwoke-like office. And the fact that these three different sitcoms all share like this one common thread of hey look at this quirky receptionist or like junior uh, assistant it's just like don't do it (laughs) and as a matter of fact like the owner of now they're all kind of blurring no special okay so ryan's boss and special is one of my least favorite characters on television of all time because they obviously tried to make her Karen Walker-esque by just saying ridiculous. The more ridiculous thing that comes out of her mouth, I think the intention is that it's funny. It's usually not very funny. <laughs> it's like definitely something to get HR involved in. Um, and in Shrill... I just didn't like John Cameron Mitchell. <laughs> that simple. Um... Hacks, I think, is probably the best sitcom out of all of these. Uh, Jean Smart is killing it. She's just so funny. But I don't particularly care for the actress that's playing Ava. I think it's a generational thing. Um, it's also probably the, the, the middle part. If she didn't have a middle part, I might like her more. But hey, I'm, I'm Gen X. I will always do a side part. That's just me to my grave. <laughs> I hope everyone's caught up with Mayor of Easttown. I hope. <laughs> it's better than The Undoing. It was definitely better than The Undoing. And I have a feeling it might come back for season two. But it just kind of... I'm glad I watched it. I would recommend it. But I just felt like there was it. She, Mayor, what are, what's her last name? Mayor, Mayor, whatever is just she's too. She's like a super cop, <laughs> and it's unbelievable to me that all this stuff would happen to one single, like singular cop in. I don't know. This pro- I mean, I guess this is supposed to last over like six months the course of uh, this season because if I think the party happened in January where Aaron died and then at the end, like the, the la- one of the last things we see is her daughter, Mayor's daughter, Shabon, drive to Berkeley in her Prius. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, like a lot of stuff happens to her. She loses her part, like her partner gets killed, murdered. Uh, she finds the kidnapping victim. She plants drugs in her uh, son's girl ex. How do I even explain this? 
she plants drugs in her not daughter-in-law's car <laughs> sure um it's really loud oh, those sirens again they're coming for me mayor's coming for me let's get into episode nine of top chef i will say i think well no i'm gonna jinx it if i say this but uh so i won't actually say it at all <laughs> i'm not gonna say it at all no because i have been burned before and yeah i'm not even gonna say it i'm not gonna say it but i think i know who's gonna win top chef i think it's down to two and um for various reasons i think it's down to basically shoda and don they're just getting the best edits i've ever seen on a top chef season hands down the best edits i've ever seen for a winner the fact that they brought up shoda's son who we've never heard about <laughs> in nine weeks of the competition so far an eight-year-old kid it's i don't know it's it's gonna be a close one i can tell so let's get into top chef let's get into top chef episode eight episode nine <laughs> it was last week let's get into top chef episode nine dawn starts the episode by saying um i wish that there was something i could have done i wish there was something i could have done to help her chances uh, and she's referring to Sarah, of course, who just had to leave last week uh, from Restaurant Wars. And this is sort of, I felt, the editors giving Dawn the sympathetic, caring, nurturing edit, which is different because we know she's in no danger of going home. I'm pretty sure Dawn makes it to the very end, and she is my contender for the win. Uh, but there is this sort of Shota narrative coming that I think we're learning a lot more about Shota, and that's interesting, and I think might lead up to a surprise defeat. But uh, I also feel like we're setting Shota up as the presumed winner, but I think Dawn's going to snatch it away from him. And I really hope by stating that out into the world... I don't jinx it. Padma introduces uh, Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen for the quickfire. And the quickfire challenge is to create a dish that features some of the ingredients you see here in this hipster kitchen. And like I said, I think Dawn emerges as the one to beat. She's already, she already owns 20 to 30 pieces of these vintage kitchen equipment pieces. So uh, she says she's going to make a quick bread out of a corn mold, like a corn cob mold. Uh, and she's going to make it out of something called Fonio, Fonio, and semolina. Uh, kind of like cornbread, but with no corn, she says. Uh, Gabe is doing a kombucha braised purple yam, crispy yam skins, pickled purple cauliflower. And on this note, I will say there is a great show uh, on Netflix called High on the Hog. It's about American, uh, African-American cooking uh, cuisine and how it sort of changed, altered America. And... In the first episode, uh, the host, uh, Stephen, Stephen, I believe his name is, he goes to Benin in Africa, and they go through this discussion of the difference between sweet potatoes and yams, and it's a great episode. I've only watched half of it. Uh, I think it's like a six-part docuseries on Netflix, High on the Hog. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. Uh, you'll learn something. It kind of reminded me of Padma Lakshmi's Taste of a Nation, Taste of a nation was that what it's called on hulu 
uh, sort of this food history docu-series, uh, travelogue, um, essay, food essay kind of thing. Um, it's great. It's, it's super informative, and you'll learn a lot. I trust. <laughs> Shoda does a spicy, nutty green bean with watermelon seed butter, toasted almonds, pickled beets, and asparagus. <laughs> and, uh, Padma asks to see Shoda's hand because he's written uh, the name of his dish or like all the components of his dish on his hand. <laughs> Padma kind of uh, shoots him out. Well, isn't this hipster? <laughs> um, Jamie does a mushroom and pickled asparagus dumpling, turnips, hemp seed oil, vinaigrette. Maria does a tomato soup, and this looks kind of good. Sort of like a comfort food. Uh, tomato soup with harissa, coconut milk, and cardamom crumble. Don does a phonio? Phonio. I don't know where to put the emphasis on that syllable. Basically, it's a quick bread with pancetta jam, bear butter, bear butter. That must be pear butter. That must have pear butter. Bear butter? Ooh. Uh, and goat butter. Um, Chris does... <laughs> I, I could tell Chris was going home. <laughs> From the quick fire because yo you you served cauliflower. <laughs> How the fuck are you gonna serve cauliflower or even variations of cauliflower with sauerkraut, black garlic, aioli? Nah, you need to serve more than just vegetables on the plate, dude. Uh, Byron does a pan-seared striped bass and dye finger limes and pickled beet salsa, and this is kind of <laughs> um. If you know me outside of the podcast, you know that I was on Jeopardy. And you know that one of the first things I had to like pronounce on Jeopardy was endive on Dive. And I guess I had never said that word before out loud. <laughs> and like, like the look on my face when I have to pronounce endive on Dive on camera as my first response on Jeopardy just just takes me back to uh, to being 20 something. <laughs> he rests in peace. Uh, Alex Trebek had to correct my pronunciation of Nobel, like the Nobel Peace Prize. I said noble. <laughs> and it kind of like got me all flustered for like a quick second, but whatever. Oh, that's, those are all of our contestants. So our least favorite dishes were Jamie's dumpling and Chris's cauliflower. <laughs> and in the tops, the tops for the quick fire were Gabe, Maria, and Dawn. Don gets the W, and Padma says that she'll get an advantage in the elimination challenge. How is it possible that Chef Don Burrell has never won a quickfire before? How is this possible? She's, I mean, I guess she's been in the bottom, but like she had the best dishes in the bottom of Restaurant Wars, uh, that team, but she's never been in the bottom, but she's never won a quickfire? And then the toxic male in the room, Gabe, says that he's also never won a quick fire. I think it's really surprising. Like, we need a breakdown of data analysis, uh, chef testant by chef testant. Because uh, the ones we think are doing really well <laughs> versus how they see themselves in this competition would be truly staggering. Uh, do, like, my question is do Dawn and Gabe think that they're doing poorly? Even though, like, most viewers at home, the clueless people watching, think that they're probably, like, the top two contenders. Imagine what a mindfuck that must be while you're competing on television. 
oh, I'm a really talented chef, but I've never won a quick fire, so I must be doing poorly, and I might be like, packing my knives up and going. Padma brings out uh, Richard Blaze and Dale Talday. And what do they all have in common? <laughs> they all have cookbooks. They've all written cookbooks. The elimination for this challenge. We want you to create a recipe that will take 90 minutes, per, 90 minutes to prepare. Write the recipe for someone that's not a chef to be followed. I thought this was a super hard challenge. Uh, I mean, I'm by no means like a chef, but I do think I'm a pretty good like home cook. And I usually cook by instinct unless it's like a new recipe and then I'll probably follow it the first time and then I'll just like make it my own going like going forward after that. Uh, so, but because I'm a cook by instinct, I just like taste along the way. So I don't really measure anything unless I'm baking. I can't bake. Like baking is, baking is like a science and I'm not like, my mind's not cut out for that. But I can like throw together ingredients and make a dish. <laughs> um, but I don't know if I could translate that into writing my own recipes for someone else to follow. That's hard. Like even for like a professional chef, I think that's... That's like a completely different set of skills. <laughs> like that's like something a recipe tester would be great at, maybe not a chef. Anyway, uh, so Dawn gets an extra 15 minutes because she won the quick fire. And these 15 minutes don't ever come back up ever again. <laughs> it's like she didn't even need them probably. Gabe mentions doing the test kitchen prep for the Noma pop-up in Tulum, which means that we were both in Mexico at the same time. <laughs> in 2016 probably um so i can kind of i <laughs> it tells me a lot about him <laughs> uh that he like continuous continually holds on to this uh this tent pole of hey my career took me to do the noma pop-up uh, probably the most famous restaurant in Copenhagen, uh, the most famous restaurant in the world, probably based in Copenhagen, Noma, uh, that did a pop-up in Tulum. Tulum's one of my favorite places in Mexico. Everyone says that Tulum's kind of over, but, uh, every time, except that one time I was in Tulum, I hated it, but that was, that was whatever. Um, don't ruin Tulum, please <laughs> keep Tulum paradise. Almost paradise. Okay, I'm like running off of like way too much caffeine right now. So let's just finish this up. Tom Colicchio visits the kitchen and warns the chef testants, be precise because we may put you up to a little test tomorrow. Hmm. And this, this is like one of the few times I feel like we've seen Tom Colicchio in his chef's jacket in the kitchen. Anyway, come on, admit it. Who else got nervous watching Dawn's buttermilk broth turn bitter and then watching her toss it out to start over? I was like, oh, you're going to run out of time. Oh, I wish they would have maybe like pointed out the fact that this is probably where her 15 minutes went. Come on, editors, do your job. Okay, so this whole Chef Shoda has an eight-year-old son. It just seems it came out of nowhere. And if we're giving him the highlight, of like, oh, thanks for participating, but there's no shot you're winning, so here's a little package to show you and your happy little family. It seems a little, like, slapped together. Um, it seems unearned, because we know he's probably in no danger of going home. Um, but 
Also, props to the editors because we never really hear about like Asian dads in the media uh, trying to improve um, his life. Like this Japanese dad is trying to improve his kid's life in Japan, and that's not a story we hear on reality TV ever. The next day is cook day, and when they get to the hotel restaurant. The coolest kids in school show up late to class. Kristen, Melissa, Kwame, and Gregory Gorday are literally the coolest kids in school. These are the kids that you want to cut class with. These are the kids that you want to skip a day of school, get in a car, and go to the amusement park or like the water park. These are the kids that you go into, like you go downtown with, and uh, you walk through the park and try to like buy some drugs. No, I'm kidding. They're just like, they're just like the coolest kids. (laughs) You know, they're probably like the ones that were probably like bad influences, (laughs) but they worked out like all their shit and now they're like super talented and like really into what they do. (laughs) I hope your recipes work, Gregory says. And so the elimination challenge is really all the all-stars will follow their recipes, the chef testants recipes to serve alongside the chef's dishes. And the best moment is uh, Kristen points out that Maria's recipe calls for, and this is where I got a little confused because at one point she says that she needs eight pounds of meat for six people, but then I think it becomes five pounds of meat for six people. And I need to know where these three pounds of meat went. Is it three pounds of fat? That oof. And because I'm not familiar with Kristen for her original Seattle season, um, I think I should go back and watch it. Is she like a shady lady chef? I love it. She gives me, and I hate to compare her, but she gives me like real strong, confident, Crystal Kung Ming cough energy. Like, I'm not afraid of saying what I need to say, so I will say it, and I am here for it. So I will probably go back and watch Kristen's season um, because I need to know more about her. (laughs) I say it almost all of the time. But for the love of Ben and Jerry's, please get these men a tailor. Not a single jacket or blazer fits properly. Richard Blaze's jacket looks like it's two sizes too small. Dale Talday is trying to look slim by wearing a black blazer. But it's not fitted, so it doesn't work. Yes, black may be slimming, but it's really not. It needs to be tailored. <laughs> Tom is having some weird shoulder issue in his suit jacket. Like, look at the seams, fellas. Look at the seams on your jackets. All of the seams on these jackets are pulling, tugging. It's, I can't help notice it. Like, the fit just, it drives me crazy. And yes, we have all gained weight during the quarantine. I understand. But this is a television show, and I want... <laughs> The judges dressed appropriately. So, I mean, all the women have looked spot on, but the men are looking so schlubby, and it's really annoying. <laughs> the first one up is Gabe, and he does a steamed black cod with crispy skin and salsa veracruzana. And if you thought we'd go an entire episode without Chef Shoda calling his food sexy, you'd be wrong. Because right before time is called for his round, he garnishes the last of his dishes and says, sexy. Yep, 
he calls his plate sexy. And I can't explain why, but I find it so cringeworthy. I've complained about it at least three weeks in a row now. Food, plates, garnish is not sexy. He needs to find a different word for it. The more he says it, the less I want him to win. So, uh, yeah, Chef Don all the way. Shoda does a soy braised pork belly with turnip puree and pear salad. I need to understand. So I've been, <laughs> I'm a big fan of like meal kits. I've been doing a lot of meal kit preparation um, from like local places in New York City for the last like 15 months now. Um, and I keep getting this meal kit with um, turnips, <laughs> like soy turnip, soy like glazed like hunk of turnip it's not my favorite um i <laughs> i don't like turnips i think it's just this bland blah rooty um starch <laughs> and i don't know why turnips have been such a huge part of like top chef this year <laughs> i just don't get it but yeah, um, I'm not into like hockey puck turnip presentations with soy. <laughs> um, but I guess that's like a thing that chefs are really into these days. I guess, you know how like food culture <laughs> has like these like ebbs and flows, ebbs and ebbs and like things come in, things come things become popular. And I feel like turnips having like a moment and I wish turnip wasn't having a moment because it's fucking turnip Ugh. Maria does a traditional Sonoran pork and bean soup uh, gallina pinta I think she calls it it's got cilantro hominy onion lime pinto beans Chris does a sorghum gnocchi with green romesco and braised dandelion greens we get very little from Jamie this episode so little that I kind of knew that she was safe because they barely talked about her her dish is seared foie gras with brioche French toast, blueberry compote, and black sesame. It's kind of her play on a PB&J sandwich. How fun would like a sitcom workplace comedy be with Kristen Kwame Gregory and Melissa? I'd watch that. I need this on like FX now. Um, or like a chef's only Big Brother style show, like 24-7 cameras in a house with just chefs. We can call it Chef's Quarters, Chef's House, Shea Chef. I don't know. Like, I'm sure Bravo would be into it. Uh, summer House style, Summer House style Top Chef contestants? Uh, yeah, maybe. Byron does a steamed striped bass with seafood broth and beans. Fish with beans. Hmm. I feel like beans and seafood don't go together but I could be convinced otherwise. Dawn does a salmon with buttermilk broth and gailan. Gailan is Chinese broccoli. Uh, the judges can tell that Dawn gave a great recipe because Kristen followed it well. It is executed perfectly. But I think it's also odd that no one brings up that this, I assume, crispy fish, uh, this crispy piece of salmon is drenched in buttermilk sauce so i feel like it's probably going to get soggy it'll be overwhelmed by this liquid but not a single judge brings it up so 
yeah, I. It seems like something they would have brought up. So the tops are Don, Gabe, Maria, and Shota. Richard Blaze says that Gabe is a master saucier. Sauces are quite hard, so he makes great sauces. I think sauces can mask like a flavorless, overcooked protein. It can keep something from drying out and keeping it moist. But uh, I'm not impressed. I mean, I guess I don't think that being a master saucier is like directly in line with being top chef. I think, yeah, that's like a component of being a good chef, but you make great sauces. You make great moles, Gabe. I don't think that, and I don't think that there's a chance in hell that Gabe becomes top chef, but I think it's funny that they keep uh, mentioning and uh, praising his sauces. Dale says that Shoda's turnip puree was the star of his dish and not the pork belly. I feel like turnip puree is the new cauliflower rice or the new broccoli or riced broccoli. I don't ever want to have turnip puree. Dawn does a good recipe. She serves good food. Uh, I just don't understand why she didn't win. She doesn't win this challenge because Gabe wins this challenge. And I'll be honest, she looks a little disappointed when the guest judges announce that Gabe is the winner. It's bizarre to me. Padma says, and I think this is shade, but maybe not. She says that she would buy a book of Gabe's sauces. So your protein and vegetable cooking isn't great, but damn, bro, you can make a good sauce. (laughs) This also marks the third time that Chris has been called out for making bad pasta. So obviously it is time for him to pack his knives and go. I feel really badly. I think uh, Jamie and Byron are now in very, very uh, dangerous, perilous waters. Um, And I think next week will be the end of their stint on Top Chef. So, yeah. Hey, all you problematics. Thanks for listening. Check me out on Instagram. I can be found at problematicpod. It's problematicpod. And leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Check you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.